people that Campbell was preaching last Lord's Day. I think his first time to preach here on the Lord's Day morning, and so thankful for his ministry. Uh, it's good to be back with you. I haven't preached in this pulpit for about six weeks, so I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how long it'll go. I don't know what's going to take place, but uh, just you hang in there, and I'll and hang on, and we'll see where we go. Well, this morning I, I've been thinking about a subject for, for quite some time, a subject that I, I wanted to do a bit more personal Bible study on, and that's on the subject of Christian friendship. I am confident that in our current era, we know less about friendship than prior generations did. We are a more individualist, individualistic culture. We, we prize our individualism to such a degree that our feelings become our identity and whatever we say our identity is, everybody else has to accept it, regardless of what it might be. It's not the best way to build close friendships. A few months ago, I began to put some thoughts down on paper about this subject and just did some extended reading from a number of books. There aren't a lot of books out there on this subject of Christian friendship, so I was doing some reading and just making my way through a number of passages throughout the scripture, started to put it on paper, and it became the basis of a brief talk that I did at one of our Ironman gatherings a number of months ago. And a few brothers encouraged me to bring it to the entire congregation on Lord's Day morning, and so it wasn't long enough, so I've tried to add some more to it and just try to fill it out. So this seemed like a good opportunity in between that summer series on prayer that our staff and our elders have done and our recent trip to Central Asia, this seemed like a good opportunity to, to talk through this issue with you. So this morning I want to talk through the basics in biblical friendship. Now, discipleship is a theme that we often talk about in our church a lot. We need to keep discussing and pursuing that subject of discipleship until the Lord returns. And at its most fundamental level, discipleship is just basically learning from another person. So in that sense, discipleship requires really only a few things, a teacher and one who is willing to be taught and follow. Now that can be a very formal kind of relationship and one that doesn't require anything personal in the relationship necessarily. So in that sense, I can say that people like John MacArthur and Chuck Swindoll were discipling me when I was in high school because I listened to them all the time. I outlined their sermons. I listened to everything I could get from them. And I could really say that just on a very formal and high level, those guys were discipling me. I didn't meet either of them until I was in college. And when I did meet them, it was little more than an introduction that felt probably and left little for them to ever remember and certainly a lot, a lot less than what would be desired on my part. But normally when we talk about discipleship among us here, we mean something more than just a formal relationship with people we don't know. We mean something that may involve formal settings, but something that is likely more personal and more relational. A friend of mine, Rick Holland, who many of you know, and he's going to be here in a few weeks to talk to our grounded student ministry parents and on a, on a great subject. I'll say more about that at the end of the service, but Rick Holland, who is a pastor in our area, he likes to define discipleship as Christian friendship. 
Christian friendship. I think when he was here a number of years ago in our pulpit, he even defined it that way. Christian friendship, that's what discipleship is. You know, in a number of very informal ways, Rick Holland had been a discipler of mine long before he was ever a friend of mine. I listened to years of him teaching before I ever met him personally. And when I met him personally, that relationship was more professional than it was personal. I paid all of his bills. I worked in an accounting office. He was a pastor at a church, and so I just made sure his name was good. But then, by God's grace, we had a few occasions to interact personally on some ministry issues, and then we both moved to the same area, and we've now traveled a few times together, and we've had many, many long conversations about a good many things. And the relationship now is closer to his definition of a Christian friendship. I'm still learning from him. He's still teaching me. Perhaps I can make some fruitful contribution into his life, but it it looks a little more like a Christian friendship in the discipleship. But if Rick is right, and I think he is, then a Christian friendship being being the fundamental of discipleship may be more challenging than we may think. We are living in a world of many associations, but very few friends. Now we say that they are friends, but online connections are merely public associations. They're not genuine friendships. And I'm quite sure that someone's gonna want to argue that point with me in our online world that we live in, but they're not real friendships. They can be affirming, but they'll never be intimate as long as they stay online. Those kinds of friendships can provide assistance, but they're never going to be fully present as long as they live in the internet. They can text you, but they can't be consistent with you if they remain locally removed from you. You can meet them, but you'll never really be near them unless it moves beyond the World Wide Web. The online world is not a world of friends. At best, it is merely a world of associations. And in a world with few friends, we are likely living in a world of growing selfishness. Have you noticed that? The absence of true Christian friendship breeds a depth of selfishness. Where you are not pursuing the good of others, you are likely lusting for the pursuit of your own good. In the absence of you having to invest yourself in other people, we naturally turn inward and we want for ourselves. And where friendships are small, discipleship will be small. But aside from the dearth of friendships, what are we to say about the Christian side of Rick Holland's definition of discipleship, Christian friendship? Because we know that Christianity can be coldly defined in terms of doctrinal truths that people intellectually affirm. And we also know that the pendulum can swing the other way in defining Christianity. It can be little more than just sharing heartaches and challenges with people who will emote with us but leave us still wallowing in our sins? More likely, many define Christianity in terms of 
going to church. One that provides a thin statement of orthodox belief, but an exciting experience we can watch from a chair. Or better yet, these days we can watch from our living room. Some people are even redefining church planting by planting online churches, which is an oxymoron. Church and Christianity can often be relegated to events that we attend with other people and very little more than that. And if it was to become more than that, church life and Christianity can still keep people at a comfortable distance from the details of life that could feel threatening to the pleasantries that we typically exchange when we're here in the building. And this kind of definition of Christianity, we all know, I think at our heart we all know, that's too small. It's too small. And so if that's our definition of Christianity and discipleship, then discipleship is even smaller. And if we were actually discipling one another along the lines of Christian friendship, what would you say that it would look like? What would it consist of? I don't know that we have a lot of modern examples to look at. It's hard to find them. Healthy friendships, especially the kind that, of health that requires something that's thoroughly biblical. I think we can be good at having friends who are Christians, but not necessarily Christian friendship, and there's a difference. We can have friends who are Christians, and you can usually tell the difference in what those friends are most committed to in their friendship. Perhaps it is an approach to lifestyle, exercise, so-called wellness, hobbies, schooling preferences, entertainment interests, or you name it. When that's the foundation of the friendship, you can have friends who are Christians, but you might not necessarily have Christian friendship. Being friends with Christians does not make Christianity the warp and the woof of your relationships by default. It makes it merely a springboard, perhaps, to other interests. Interests that in and of themselves might be good, and they might particularly be enjoyed among good friends, but they likely should not be the defining foundation of what we call Christian friendship or discipleship. So where do you look? Where do you look for a good biblical definition of friendship? Well, what are we going to say here in this place? We always say, well, we're going to go to the Bible. And that's where we want to look. But where? Where? There's not just one text that defines this is what Christian friendship is. You have to look across the word of God and see what it says. So this is a subject that I, I plan to keep pursuing more thoroughly read a little bit more on. I found a few more resources that were recommended to me even this past week, but as a foundation to something more specific, let's see if we can just give an outline this morning. And this outline is just outlining a few basics for biblically-based friendship. The basics of a Christian friendship. The kind of Christian friendship that would promote real discipleship in Jesus. That's what we're looking at. Some basics about what a Christian friendship that promotes discipleship in Jesus would actually look like. Let me give you a few of these basics. First, number one, Christian friendship 
is established on what is personally common. Christian friendship is established on what is personally common. Now, that's true of any friendship, Christian or not. It's true of any friendship, Christian or not. And we mean by that what is shared on a common, not just a common, but even a more personal level, but a common personal level. Now, most friendships, even in or outside the faith, will be founded on common interests, common relationships, common locations, common values, common priorities, and even common goals. We know that. And we also know that we are not friends in the closest sense with everyone, are we? Even if we are friendly to most, we do not call everyone a friend. But those with whom we share something in common on a personal level, those are ones for whom that word friendship is usually given to. And even with that, such friendships are going to vary. How many interests Which relationships? How frequently are we in the same location? Which values and how many of them do we share? What priorities do we hold in common? And to what level and in what ways? Which goals do we mutually pursue together? How deeply connected are those goals to the granular details of our life? All of that speaks into what kind of friendships that we're going to have. And with that, you will likely have a number of friends and they will have lighter and darker shades of depth to all those relationships. That's common. But with these common interests, if it is a Christian friendship, how many of these shared interests have the scriptures and maybe even explicit scriptures connected to them? How fervent are the biblical interests between two people? Your friendships will likely have as much depth as is your shared fervency for those biblically shaped interests. I think you could enjoy the same sport or the same sports team or any other social connection. And you could even have a meal over them. Or you could get together regularly in your homes regarding those social interests. But the depth of the friendship will be determined by how fervent your interest is in what is most personal. And if the social interest is the most personal thing in your life, then your friendship at the end of the day is likely going to be quite shallow. Social interests do not necessarily touch all of life. But do you know what does touch every avenue of life? Christianity. So if the social interest is the foundation of your friendship, the friendship cannot go deeper than that one common interest. But if it is Christianity and the gospel that is the foundation for the friendship, it touches everything. What happens to the relationship when you engage in all those social enjoyments but you do so from a shared fervency from your personal fellowship with the Lord? Well, it changes the content of the conversations, the level at which you will be open, less self-aware, more open to others and more likely to stay engaged. It leaves all of life exposed and engaged. 
There's no doubt that shared interests are involved in most good friendships, and the more of them you share in, the more likely the relationship will grow. There is one common interest that is foundational and essential to Christian friendship, though. One common interest that is foundational and essential. And we call it, in, in biblical language, we call it fellowship. Fellowship. Fellowship is the Greek word from the, the biblical Greek language, koinonia. Koinonia, it's likely a term that you have heard before, and it refers to a partnership. It refers to a relationship that is built on a shared experience or commitment. And fellowship is fundamental to Christianity. Fellowship is fundamental, but we have to be careful with this definition. Fellowship is a relationship you possess before it is ever something that you express. This is critical for you to get. Fellowship is a relationship you possess before it is ever a relationship you express. It is something you have before it is something you do. You express fellowship because you have fellowship. And fellowship is an established partnership before it is an experienced relationship. And I want to show you that biblically, if you will, just for a moment and And we're going to move to a number of scriptures today. So if you would, let's start with looking at 1 John. Not the Gospel of John that Brett read for you, but turn to the right, almost to the end of the Bible, to the little epistle of 1 John. I want to look at a few verses in that opening section of 1 John chapter 1 because it expresses what fellowship is. Fellowship being foundational to Christianity is something you possess. It's a relationship you have. You can't lose it or gain it once you have it. It's possessed. And then it is, it is expressed. I want to show you that. Look at chapter 1. John the apostle says in verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard What we have seen with our eyes and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. What's he talking about? Well, John was there when the Lord Jesus walked the earth. And he's saying, we heard him. We saw him with our own eyes. We looked at and touched him with our hands, even after he was raised from the dead. Do you remember that? In the latter part of John's gospel, they actually could touch him. And he says in verse 2, the life, speaking of Jesus, was manifested and we have seen and we testify and we proclaim to you the eternal life. He's speaking of Christ. And he was with the Father and he was manifested to us. And what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So what is he saying? We heard the Lord, we witnessed him, we heard him teach, we touched him, we're proclaiming him to you, why? Why is John proclaiming him to us? So that, verse three, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now that's a profound statement. What does he mean have fellowship with us? So that you might believe what we believe, that you might know the one that we know, We've had this rich relationship with the one who is eternal life. And we want you to have that same fellowship with him with us. 
It is a fellowship with Christ that is shared with us. And he goes on. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And he goes on. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now watch verse 6. If we say that we have what? Fellowship, koinonia. If we say we have fellowship with him, what does he mean by that? He does not mean if we say that we are experiencing this kind of warm relationship with Christ, this interpersonal back and forth with Christ. He means if we actually have a relationship at all with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If you say that you know the Lord... If you say that you have fellowship with him, you have a relationship with him, a partnership with him, you have rich fellowship with him, but you walk in the darkness, that is, you walk contrary to who he is, the light, then what's true of you? We lie and we do not practice the truth. To express the relationship with Christ, you must first possess that relationship in Christ. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then what do we have? Fellowship. We have a real relationship with him. And we have communion with him. Fellowship, we we talk about this sometimes. Fellowship is something that we kind of have and don't have with God. We move in and out of fellowship with God. We talk about that because we feel like we sin and now we're out of fellowship with God. Have you ever heard that kind of conversation before? That's not the way the Bible talks about fellowship. Fellowship is something you don't move in and out of. It's a relationship you have. Now you can experience the joy of it to greater depths and greater lows, but fellowship is a relationship with Christ that you possess Now, if you say you have that relationship with Christ, yet you consistently live contrary to it, you don't have the fundamental relationship. You don't know him. But if you walk in the light, you're showing that you do have that fundamental relationship with him. That's called fellowship. That's fundamental to Christianity. That's fundamental to the way that we relate to each other. Christian friendship is established on, it shares in, it expresses a shared fellowship. And what's fundamentally common in the depth of interest is your shared commitment to Christ. All other shared interests flow from, they're touched by, they're shaped by, they're even challenged by that one relationship of fellowship with Christ. You will enjoy differently and experience differently the social enjoyments that you both as friends are interested in, if you have a shared biblical fellowship, and you'll enjoy those interests more if you have that shared interest in Christ than if you don't. So at the very beginning, when we talk about a Christian friendship, we're talking about a fellowship that's a shared fellowship, a relationship we share with Jesus Christ. Friendship is established on what is personally common, and that is our common relationship with Jesus. I say this regularly. It's likely that none of us would ever know one another if it were not for the gospel. 
We, we would not be meeting together. We would not have relationships with one another. We would not have the common bond of fellowship that we have. We would not engage in the kinds of activities we do if we did not know the Lord. We, we simply would not know each other. That is critical to our relationship. It's what draws us together. And you cannot have a depth of friendship that is truly of an eternal kind of relationship if Christ is not that fundamental common interest. But there's a second basic of biblical friendship that promotes discipleship in Jesus I want to put in front of you. That second basic to biblical friendship is this. Christian friendship is enhanced. It is enhanced through what is uniquely uncommon. So we establish it through what is personally common, but it is enhanced through what is uniquely uncommon. Now, what do I mean by that? Love, trust, loyalty, even intimacy, closeness. These are not qualities that are common among everyone that we know, they are uncommon. And they comprise fewer rather than more of your relationships. And even these qualities of love and trust and loyalty and intimacy and closeness, these qualities have different levels of depths and expressions to them. We do not love everyone that we love in the same way or in the same degree, right? And that is good. And we have to actually call that moral Because if you loved everyone the same way you loved your spouse, we would call it immoral. It's wrong. So there are shades of how we love one another. There are depths and degrees to that. And we all understand that. It's good. For those who are married, marriage is likely the most intimate of friendships. And when it is the most intimate of a Christian friendship, it likely will experience a depth of discipleship that is uncommon from most others. But friendships, even those outside of marriage, can actually, even in a biblically healthy way, be expressed with significant love, significant loyalty, deep closeness, and not be adulterous. An example of that, turn back to the Old Testament. I want to put your eyes on it. Turn back to the book of 1 Samuel. And likely you'll remember the relationship between David and Jonathan. And just after David defeats Goliath in chapter 17, and King Saul is inquiring about this young shepherd boy who just beheaded the greatest warrior of the Philistines and is now bringing his head to King Saul... Saul inquires about him in the end of chapter 17. In verse 57, it says, When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. You can only imagine that scene, can't you? Holding the massive head of Goliath by the hair, dripping blood from the neck. This is how you get introduced to the king of Israel. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And chapter 18 begins, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, 
that the soul of Jonathan, so David finishes his conversation with Saul, and this son of Saul, who must have been watching this take place, he's aware of all of this. Somehow in this moment, it says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Now, this is more than just attraction here, or this is a guy that I think is cool. I mean, he's, he's holding the severed head of the giant. Awesome. That's who I want to be friends with. Now, why did David sever the head of the giant? Because that giant spoke blasphemies against the Lord. You remember that in chapter 17? Who are you to speak that way about our God? That's what incensed David. David was not trying to go out there and make a show of himself. He was not going out there to try to make himself the greatest military leader in Israel. He simply heard the taunting of a giant against the armies of God and said, that can't come out of your mouth and your head stay on your shoulders. Who do you think you are? In other words, there was a zeal inside of David for God that was unique and uncommon. And as he comes before Saul and Jonathan is seeing him, I think it was more than just the battle scene that knit the souls together. There was a common zeal for God himself. And notice how far this goes. Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. That means Saul made him a part of his own home. And watch verse 3. Then Jonathan made what? A covenant. What is that? And that's a very important word in the Bible, isn't it? The word covenant is used in the book of Malachi to talk about the relationship between a man and a woman as husband and wife. Covenant is used to describe the kind of relationship that God has uniquely with his people. Covenant is a very powerful word. It talks about a relationship agreement that is unique from all others. And there must have been something in the heart of David and something in the heart of Jonathan about their common zeal for the Lord that knit their souls together. And that day, Jonathan makes a very special, unique, uncommon relationship with David. He loved him. As himself, that's the second time in this text it says that. He loved him as himself, meaning he would give up his life for that man. He would treat him as if that man were himself. In verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. This is the, the heir to the throne the second most powerful man in Israel, taking off all of the accoutrements that show who he was as the son's king, and he puts them on David as if David now is a son of Saul and his own brother. Now tell me, what kind of friendship do you think that is? That's significant, isn't it? You see it even more when David later on learns of Jonathan's death in battle. David is recorded in 2 Samuel 1, 26 to say, I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. 
Now, friends, I I am unaware of any other friendship in the Bible described in this way. Maybe you can find one. I, I don't know of another human friendship like this described in this way. I take it that this was a most unique friendship, unlike any other relationship either man had. And both were married. They were faithful to their spouses. Both had other friendships with other people. It was not an exclusive relationship to itself. They weren't like junior hires who are always jealous that someone has another friend other than me. Pardon me, middle schoolers. That just shows how old I am, right? There was a love between them of self-sacrifice, service to each other, humility before one another, time invested in one another that was unique and it was uncommon. There's another relationship we could look at in the Bible that was, I think you could say, a very unique, uncommon friendship between the Apostle Paul and his protege Timothy. If we understand the timeline of the Bible correctly, we would say that Paul was likely probably a man around 60 years of age, maybe a little older than that. Timothy was likely in his 30s. Paul might have had him by 30 years. Jot down Philippians 2 because I want you to listen to the kind of language that Paul uses to describe his relationship with Timothy. You would think this is just kind of a father-son relationship. There's a closeness there. It's a discipler and one who's been discipled. But I want you to listen to the way Paul describes this relationship he has with Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 19 of Philippians. Paul says to this beloved church, the Philippian church, he said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. And then verse 20, he says this, for I have no one else of kindred spirit. Think about that for a moment. Romans 16 lists all kinds of people that Paul knew and loved. Paul frequently describes relationships of co-workers that he has at the beginnings of his letters. He has great relationships with Dr. Luke. He has marvelous relationships with people who were there to serve his needs at times. For him to say of this young man, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That is a powerful statement. That shows a depth of relationship that Paul had with Timothy that was very uncommon. He goes on to speak about that relationship in verse 21 of Philippians 2. He says, because they all seek after their own interests. What does Paul mean by that? Timothy has a unique interest with me. He's the only one of kindred spirit. And what's interesting, he doesn't say everyone else has their own interests and they're not interested in what I'm interested in. He doesn't say that. Everyone else has their own interests and not that of Christ. Because what is the shared common fellowship Paul has with Timothy? Their fellowship, their relationship in Christ 
They seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. You know what kind of man he is. You know what kind of relationship that we have. In fact, if you read the last letter that Paul ever wrote that we know of, that we have, the book of 2 Timothy, in the very last chapter, when Paul expects that he is about to die, who does he want to be with him when he dies? 2 Timothy 4.9, make every effort to come to me soon. A personal letter he writes to Timothy before he dies, make every effort to come to me soon. Listen to the way he talked about his relationship with Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.3. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers night and day. Now he said that a lot, about a lot of people, didn't he? He prayed, I mean, Paul's always praying night and day. He's praying for everybody. But he says this, In verse four, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. What kind of relationship did Paul have with Timothy? I mean, they they wept together. They shared grief together. There was a longing that caused them to love one another that it even brought tears to their eyes. And Paul was a man who had deep affection for many people. We've been reading about that and studying it in 1 Thessalonians, the kind of deep, deep affection he had for the church. And he's talking about this shared affection that he has with a co-laborer in the Lord, Timothy. And you can find this kind of relationship in a number of the saints of God. I mean, David had his mighty men. And you read about the exploits of David's mighty men David wants a drink, they go off and they defeat Philistines and they get a drink and bring it to David and David won't even drink it. Pours it out as if it were a, an offering before the Lord because he's, he's not going to refresh himself on something that could have cost the lives of his dearest co-laborers. Friendship is built on something very uncommon. Christian friendship is. We are uniquely encouraged through uncommon friendships. Listen to Proverbs 18, 24. A man of too many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. What is that? There can be a relationship and a friendship with another person that is closer and more loyal and more devoted than even that of flesh and blood family. Friendship is not merely what two people share in common. Christian friendship has an uncommon loyalty to it. So we've said Christian friendship is established on what is personally common. Christian friendship is enhanced through what is uniquely common. Third, a third basic of biblical friendship that should further discipleship in Jesus. Number three, Christian friendship is expressed through what is spiritually invested. Christian friendship is expressed through what is spiritually invested. 
And I mean by that, this is where the fellowship that is shared is actually then expressed in very tangible ways. Where all of the one another statements of the Bible, serve one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another, all those one another statements of the Bible, where these one another statements are invested in each other. So you encourage each other, you confess sin, you pray for, you confront, you correct, you love, you bless, you serve each other. You watch over one another in more specific ways built on what you continue to know of the scriptures and how each other is using the word in their life. Do you know others that way? Do you know others to such a degree that you know how they're using the Bible in their life and you're engaging in that kind of conversation with each other? It's where you are open to the input of others with less defensiveness. Have you ever noticed defensive people struggle with friendships? It's hard to have close friendships with defensive people. It's hard to be a close friend when you are a defensive person. It's where you welcome input. And know that you are welcomed to give it. It's a relationship that is humbling and expressing humility to each other. It's not seeking to be better than one another, but helping each other to be better. It is the kind of relationship that I think the book of Hebrews describes that should be among us all. It's what the commitment that we have made to each other, like in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day. I just want to ask you, what kind of relationship would you tolerate day after day that's trying to speak into your life encouragement that would try to keep you from walking away from the Christian faith? My guess is that some kind of robust Christian-based friendship. Or even Proverbs 27.5. Proverbs 27.5. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. The next verse, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of what? Of a friend. You know that verse. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds. When a friend loves you for more than just having the relationship with you. Willing to put the relationship on the line in order to speak truth so that the friend is bettered, furthered along, not perhaps led astray into some false idea. So says perhaps some hard things that are hard to hear and might agitate you for the moment and you have to go away and think about that for a minute rather than the kind of people who are always there just to affirm and affirm and affirm and affirm but not necessarily there to stick with you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 17, 17. 
A friend loves what? At all times. What does he mean? When it's not convenient to be a friend, the friend is there. When you're offended, you don't leave the friendship. When you're the one who has done the offending, you seek the betterment of the friendship. What's that going to require? Spiritual investment. And you're likely going to invest spiritually in a lot of people and it will vary in different people based on different providences of God. And God will bring certain Christians into your life at certain times that will build particularly closer relationships because of uniquely shared investments that are made. All built around a variety of providential circumstances that happen between the two of you. And we need to realize this. Friendships can enjoy not only levels of closeness with different people, but also seasons of closeness with the same people at different times because of different providences of God. You've seen that, haven't you? I I think about the, the men that stood up with me at my wedding. I think we had 18 guys in suits for that. I look back on those friendships and some of those were so close and so rich and built into me in such ways. And some of those relationships, you know, they're 21 years removed. I don't have close proximity to them any longer. Their lives have taken them to various parts of the world and we don't keep up like we we have. And you just recognize not every relationship is going to be the same as it always was. That's okay. It's all right. I mean, think about Jesus. Think about Jesus and his disciples. He loved the crowds, didn't he? I mean, Matthew 9, chapter chapter 9, verse 36, says he looks out over the crowds, and what did he feel for them? Compassion. He's moved internally because he loves them. He's like a sheep, and they're like, he's like a shepherd, and they're like sheep without the shepherd. So he loves them. He loved the crowds. Even unbelievers are said to be loved by Christ. In Mark 10, 21, he he looks into the eyes of the rich young ruler who just won't believe. And it says of Jesus and that young man, he looked at him and Jesus felt a love for him. He especially loved his disciples, didn't he? I mean, there were a group of people who they left everything to follow him. And I don't mean just the 12. I mean, there were likely a couple of hundred people that followed him and identified as disciples of Jesus and among those people he loved particularly 12. He chose 12. They came to him, they sat close to him and among the 12 there were three and among the three there were two and among the two there was even one and John sheepishly says it of himself in his gospel, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Does that mean he didn't love Peter? No, he loved Peter. Does that mean he didn't love the other 12? Oh, he loved the other 12. But there were degrees of that relationship, weren't there? You remember when he went up on the mountain and was transfigured? Matthew 17, Mark 9. Three men out of the 12, three men got to see Jesus in his kingdom glory. Now tell me, 
if, if that was you, wouldn't you come down the mountain, little swagger? I think that did happen because just a chapter later, there's a conversation going on among the disciples of who among them is the greatest. I'm quite sure Peter, James, and John are like, we saw him in his glory. Got a trump card for that one? Bet you don't. I mean, even some of the sons approach Jesus, I mean, through their mother, how bold can you be, to ask, can my boys sit at your right hand when you come in your kingdom? What are they saying? We, we already know they're closer to you than others. Can they have this eternally? You remember how the other disciples reacted? Like middle school friends? <laughs> they were disgruntled. At the final meal the disciples would enjoy with Jesus before his crucifixion, John said there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. I would guess that that's someone who was fairly close, uniquely close to him. So you can't and you won't invest in everyone in the same way and the same levels. And you cannot choose with whom you invest merely based on peer relationships, shared secular interests, common proximity to each other. Any number of providential issues will shape who and how deep and how long such friendships are going to last. And the issue is not, and you need to really put this down, the issue is not finding and having one such close relationship for all of your life. How long did David and Jonathan's friendship last? It was a fraction of David's life. It was a fraction we're not told that David ever had any other person close to him like that again. The issue is not that you have that kind of friendship. The issue is that you invest yourself in people, spiritually invest yourself in people, and see how and where the providences of God take you. And let that develop. In fact, you need to guard your heart closely because jealousy in any friendship, will kill it. It'll kill it. If you have a close friendship with someone and that person starts to get jealous that you have relationships with other people, what does it do? Does it make you want to get closer to the person? No, it starts to peel you away. Jealousy is a friendship killer because it doesn't breed the kind of character qualities that are Christ-centered, We have to make sure that our quest for friendship is not a selfish lust for what we want to control for ourselves, but a joyful investment in others in the closest way that's never threatened, never threatened by the presence of other people. Let me give you a fourth basic of friendship. Fourth, Christian friendship is employed best through what is biblically designed I'm going to talk about this fairly quickly, but it's very important. Christian friendship is employed best through what is biblically designed. And what do I mean by biblically designed? Well, there's two institutions in the Bible that I think the, the Bible would say, here's where Christian friendship is lived out in the best way. One, marriage. Marriage. 
And I don't mean to disparage those who are single, not at all, or in any such way. But I I just want to camp on, what does the Bible say about marriage? Remember, marriage was designed so that man would not be alone, right? So in the design of mankind, so that man would not be alone, he did not create another Adam, He didn't. He created Eve. He created Eve. The Lord God said, Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Woman was taken from the side of man so that she was a part of him, beside him, and connected to him. And you go further, at the end of Genesis, marriage is the only relationship anywhere in scripture where two people are described as one flesh. That has to be the most unique and closest relationship described in the Bible. And to sin against that one flesh relationship through physical intimacy with another person is a most unique expression of sinful immorality. Paul comments on this in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Why? Because he's sinning against his one flesh relationship. Marriage is designed for employing the best approach to Christian friendship. It's the arena for the most intimate of all earthly Christian friendships. And when any other, any other friendship encroaches on the one flesh nature of marriage, most other relationships are going to be destroyed along with that one. And even marriage, while it is in this world the greatest of relationships, you could say the closest of friendships, marriage is not going to be eternal, is it? It ends at some point. It ends in such a way that the relationships that we will have in the future, remember Jesus talked about after the resurrection, there's no marriage or giving in marriage. But he said in the resurrection, they'll neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And I take it to mean by that, that every relationship in eternity will be better than the closest relationships we ever had on earth. All of them will be for eternity. So marriage is is one of those designs of God from which to display Christian friendship. The second arena from which we want to show Christian friendship is the local church. The local church. And I say this because when you look at the way the Bible describes the local church, there is not another institution on the earth described by the language of the body of Christ. The local church is the body of Christ. We could go to 1 Corinthians 12 and see that, and we're, we, we're reminiscing on what that text says. We're all baptized into Christ. We're baptized into the body. We're members of one another. In verse 26, it says, if one of the members of that body hurts, the whole body hurts, right? That speaks of a very unique kind of relationship that members of the church have with one another. Being joined in a local church is a kind of covenant relationship. You're making a formal relationship with each other of how we're going to relate to one another. We even say that through a church covenant.
covenant that we rehearse together every time we have a members meeting. We remind ourselves of the kind of spiritual commitment we've made to one another. That's fundamentally a Christian friendship. It has what is personally in common in Christ, shared with one another. It is uncommon in its commitment because it's not like any other relationship in the world. It's spiritually invested because that's what you do with your fellow church members. You invest in them spiritually. It is a specific covenant relationship. If you want to pursue the best, closest Christian friendships, I suggest you start with those in your church. You're like, well, they, they kind of know me. Right. Right. That's the point. Let me finish with one final one. A fifth basic of biblical friendship. Number five. Friendship is most enjoyed through the one who is to be ultimately valued. Friendship is most enjoyed through the one who is to be ultimately valued. What I mean by that is Jesus is to be our closest friend. Jesus is. You say, oh, he's not even physically in front of us. It's not like any of the other relationships we have. But what other relationship in the Bible are you called to? Love the person like the way you're called to love God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul And with all your mind. That's pretty unique, isn't it? Exclusive even. Does it sound strange to you that God should be, through the person of Christ, your closest friend? Abraham was called God's friend, wasn't he? Moses spoke with God as a man speaks with his friend. Jesus is called a friend of sinners. Matthew 28, 20 says that he is always with us, always. He's the one who is always praying for you continually. He's always preserving you constantly. He is the one who gave himself in substitutionary death for you. So think about these words that you heard in the opening of the sermon in John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Well, what does that mean? Your commandment is for us to love each other the way Jesus has loved us? Well, how has he done that? Greater love is no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing. Meaning Jesus has told us of his plans Revealed God to us. I have called you friends. That's what the Son of God said to his disciples. I have called you friends. All things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You're not distant slaves. You're friends. And he didn't call us friends because of what great things we had done for him. He called us friends because of the great things he alone did on our behalf. Think about this. He made 
his closest, his, his worst enemies, his closest friends. I said, there's nothing more unique than that. In fact, the best of human friendships are never to be an end in themselves, are they? The best of human friendships should be a catalyst to deeper friendship in Christ. Your best friend should be shoving you and pointing you to be closer to Christ. Not to themselves, to Christ. That's true friendship. In fact, if you, if you went back to the book of Deuteronomy, there's a little section on there of what to do with a false prophet. I want you to listen to this because I find it very interesting. Deuteronomy 13, 6. If your brother or your, mother, your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish. Now, I would say those are probably the closest relationships you have. But then he goes on to say, or your friend who is as your own soul. If anyone, a friend who's like your own soul, entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods. That's not a friend. That's a false friend. That's a false prophet. That's a false friend because they're not driving you to God. They're enticing you away. So friendship is established on what is personally common. It's enhanced through what is uniquely uncommon. Christian friendship is expressed through what is spiritually invested. It's employed through what is biblically designed. And it is enjoyed most through the one who is to be ultimately valued. And some of you are saying, man, that discourages me because I don't have anybody like that in my life. Or you start to get frustrated about what you don't have. And you know where we're going with that, right? It's not about what you don't have or what you do have. It's about who you are. Rather than be down on what people aren't giving you, what are you investing? Right? What kind of friend are you? Don't, don't worry about making and forcing a friendship to happen. Simply live out the Christian life and ever growing degrees of closeness and see where the providence of God takes it. But make sure on your part you're not closing yourself off to that because of fear. Then you're not going to have these kinds of close relationships. It'll stunt your discipleship in Christ. But think about how you're building them. Maybe out of all of these five elements, there's one that you need to think on the most and maybe pray through this week and think about how do I cultivate this? Are there sins to confess? Is there something that I'm really encouraged by and thankful for? And I need to write a note this week just expressing to this person the kind of friendship they have shown me and I've not really expressed that enough to them. Or I just simply need in the quietness of my own prayer time to be more grateful to God for the relationships he's given me. Or I need to look at my life to say, what am I doing to invest in others more strategically and carefully and constantly? And listen, friendships, once you attain them, you have to maintain them as well. 
And maybe that's an element you need to think through. Am I maintaining this friendship in the best possible way? What kind of witness to the world would it be if we had these kinds of Christian friendships among us? And someone who doesn't know the Lord were to walk in here and see the uncommon relationship that exists and the joy and the level of involvement with one another. Let me, let me tell you, what the world isn't doing with one another is cultivating really close, healthy friendships. What kind of witness would that be? Let's pray together. Let's ask for God's wisdom and help. Father, we thank you for this time to meditate on the word together, to think through the truth of scripture, to enjoy this fellowship together, this relationship with you over your word. We pray that it will challenge us and it will enhance us and that from from this we might see relationships strengthened and grow and deepen. We pray there can be humility expressed between the brothers and sisters in this room to such a degree that it cultivates a kind of friendship that yields true Christian discipleship. We pray for help in this. We look forward to the way that you bring about fruit from it. And we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.